Welcome to Dayspring Fellowship. Are you ready for what God has for you today? Whether you are in the room live, watching online, or later on demand, I know one thing for sure. God wants to do something new in you. There is nothing more exciting than knowing that God is at work, even if we can't see what He's doing and have to wait a while to find out. He is always good, so our lives are safe and secure in His hands, no matter what that new thing is. I'm Chris Voigt, and I have the immense privilege of leading the team here at Dayspring. It certainly keeps me on my toes because that team expends endless energy helping people grow. If you are visiting Dayspring today, we want you to know that you can come as you. We're just like you, regular people on a journey discovering what God has for us each day, and each day saying yes to becoming like Jesus, one step at a time. Which means that no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, this is a good place to figure out what your yes is today, and tomorrow, and the next day slowly becoming like Jesus. We haven't arrived yet, so we can be good company on the journey, even if you aren't sure the Christian life is a journey you want to be on. This is a good place to ask questions as you look for answers. So welcome. You can learn more about us as a church by exploring our website at dsf.church, by checking out our Facebook page, or contacting us by phone or email. If you need help figuring out the next step to making Dayspring your home church, or if you just have questions, let us know. We'll help you find the answers. For today's service, you can find a discussion guide by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. And now, let's join our service. Well, I... I never wanted to be a lead pastor. I think I was 21 when I knew that God was calling me into vocational ministry. I was leading worship at a small church in Eugene while I was going to school. And up to that time, only big churches had worship pastors on staff. And they were men directing choirs and orchestras in suits, singing verses 1, 3, and 4 in their hymnals, which is why my dad told me not to major in music. I, he couldn't see a path forward that would put food on the table. But worship was changing, and with that change, churches saw the introduction of keyboards, guitars, basses, and the devil's own drum kit playing worship songs that felt a little more like rock and roll than a religious anthem of worship. The change in worship and worship style elevated the importance of having someone on staff who could manage chaos and herd cats, otherwise known as musicians. Uh, that was my path forward, what, what I knew that God was calling me to invest my life in. I wanted to be a worship pastor, and that's it. That was my dream. I never wanted to talk in front of a crowd. I hated talking in front of a crowd. In this simple little church where God birthed my dream, I played the only instrument as I sat at the keyboard. So that I didn't have to talk, I would have the other vocalists stand in front of me. And if there was any talking that needed to happen, someone else did it. If there was praying that needed to happen, someone else did it. I hated talking in front of a crowd. I'd rather sing in front of thousands than talk in front of ten. 
Eventually, I, I grew into talking just a little between songs when I had to, praying. It, it never felt comfortable, but I could do it with a big knot in my stomach making me feel queasy the whole time. Uh, years later, after I'd been at Dayspring for a little more than a year, I was asked to help plan Worship Northwest, a conference that brought worship teams from all over the Northwest to Salem for a two-day worship-focused training experience. And I was asked to teach a class. Me, the guy who doesn't like to talk, the guy who felt like he didn't have much to offer, but I'd spent the last 15 years saying yes, whenever God opened a door, just yes. I never really focused on where the journey was leading. I trusted God for that part. Uh, instead, I focused on what I believed is at the heart of worship, surrender and obedience. I simply tried to live each day just being faithful to whatever God put on my plate for that day. And that day, God was inviting me to say yes to sharing any scrap of wisdom I had about worship. That yes changed my life. And in the years that followed, I honed my public speaking skills as I taught worshipers from around the Northwest and then all over the Western Hemisphere about worship. Speaking at Worship Northwest then also opened the doors to me teaching here on Sundays every now and then, which eventually led us to where we are today. Me doing something I never wanted to do when I started this journey more than 30 years ago. And surprise of all surprises, I actually like it. But if I knew then what I know now, I would never have believed it. And if I'm honest, I probably would have fought against it. I would have said no. I think that's why God only grants us the grace to see the next step or two on our journey. If we knew where he was taking us, we'd dig in our heels more than we already do. I mean, I barely feel qualified to be a lead pastor now, especially after the past two years of making up church as we go. Uh, imagine how I would have felt about it back then if I had known at the start of the journey. So God kept the destination hidden from me. It was a mystery that was slowly revealed over time. Things that didn't make sense at the time now make sense because I have the gift of perspective as I look back on that journey. Which brings us to the Apostle Paul. Now, if you are joining us for the first time today, we're working our way through the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus in our series that we've called Ephesians, Becoming Who You Are. Almost universally, Christ followers struggle with their identity. Even those of us who have fought the good fight and finally come to terms with our identity in Christ need to be reminded of who we are every now and then. We see ourselves through the lens of our weaknesses and failures, our not good enoughs, and our not there yets. We have our feet in two worlds with competing values and the enemy of our souls is a master at blurring the lines between them, making us reach for the right things the wrong way and the wrong things the right way. <laughs> he, he wants to keep us from fully stepping into our identity as followers of Christ individually and as the church as a whole, putting a smack dab in the middle of a war that has already been won, the other side just hasn't surrendered in defeat 
yet. Now in Ephesians, as we've seen so far, Paul reminds us of who we have already become in Christ with all of those failures and weaknesses and not good enoughs and not there yets. In fact, all of those failures, weaknesses, not good enoughs and not there yets don't change who we are in Christ one iota. And if we individually and as the church could learn to really embrace our identity, to step into that identity and live it out in the power of the Holy Spirit, the gates of hell would shudder in fear. This week, we're in chapter 3. And Paul begins this way. He writes, when I think of all this. Now all this is everything we've already covered in chapters 1 and 2. We have been chosen by God and stand securely as adopted children. It doesn't matter who we are or what our background or even what we've done in the past. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And now in our unity we represent God to the world. We are ambassadors of his reconciliation and peace to a lost and dying world. The presence of God in each of us is made complete in all of us, which is where we ended last week. And before we move on, I want to remind us of this truth. This is too important to let our Western individualism get in the way of how we understand the church and our role in the church. Now think of it this way. When we come to Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in each of us. He is the deposit or guarantee for our future. He's the proof of our standing with God. And, and he powers our journey to become like Jesus. Which, if the temple is where God dwells, makes us many temples of God. But though it gets sometimes gets a little fuzzy in the translation process, especially when we interpret through the lens of our Western individualism, the New Testament clearly paints a picture that we, the capital C church collectively, are the temple of God. Uh, Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that God's spirit lives in you? All of you together. Now, if you grew up with the New International Version or the King James Version, the NIV says, you yourselves are God's temple. And the King James Version says, ye are the temple of God. Uh, both of those phrases miss out on the it takes all of us to make the temple of God. So you can see how easy it would be to live not really understanding the importance of the church on your Christian journey and how important you are to the church. Picture it this way. As a mini temple of God, you are like this puzzle piece that we see here on the title slide of this message. But you alone do not give the complete picture of God that the world needs to see. All of us fitted together are the visible presence of God that the world needs to see. Apart from the whole, you are both robbed of this completeness and you rob others of the same. So that's what, that's what Paul is thinking about as we begin chapter 3. When I think of all this, 
I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the benefit of you Gentiles. Now, one more stop before we zip through this section. Remember that Paul is writing this letter from prison in Rome. Note that he doesn't say that he is a prisoner of Rome, which is what we might expect him to say. Instead, he is a prisoner of Christ Jesus. As we're going to see in these next few verses, Paul understands that his circumstances have been orchestrated by God for the purposes of God, which should serve to give each of us a perspective to consider about our own circumstances. What would you do differently as you navigate your valleys if you knew that God had put you there for a purpose? And spoiler alert, he has. So Paul, a prisoner of Christ for the benefit of the Gentiles, in verse 2, assuming, by the way, that you know God gave me the special responsibility of extending his grace to you Gentiles. As I briefly wrote earlier, God himself revealed his mysterious plan to me. As you read what I have written, you will understand my insight into this plan regarding Christ. God did not reveal it to previous generations, but now by his spirit, he has revealed it to his holy apostles and prophets. So much like God's plan for my journey to become a lead pastor, but on a far greater cosmic scale, God has finally revealed the mysteries of what he's been up to since the beginning of creation, since the beginning of time. And and he let Paul in on the secret. And now we see Paul living out his identity and calling by sharing this mystery of grace with us. And this is God's plan. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body and both enjoy the promise of blessings because they belong to Christ Jesus. By God's grace and mighty power, I have been given the privilege of serving him by spreading this good news. Though I am least, the least deserving of all God's people, he graciously gave me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasures available to them in Christ. I was chosen to explain to everyone this mysterious plan that God, the creator of all things, had kept secret from the beginning. Since we talked about the Jews and the Gentiles both receiving reconciliation or salvation on the same terms last week, um, I won't add much here other than to say that Paul had a correct view of his failures and weaknesses. He didn't allow his past to get in the way of his relationship with Christ or hold him back from his calling. As the least deserving of God's uh, all of God's people, he is recognizing that it is only through grace that he has a platform to speak at all. His humility and gratitude for that grace are what God is using for his credentials. Now, pay attention here in verse 10. This is God's why. He's been working a mysterious plan that from a human perspective has made no sense 
most of the time. I mean, come on, look at the Old Testament. We have story after story after story of sin and brokenness. Story after story of God using sinful, broken people to demonstrate his love and power. Up to and including Paul, a man who before Christ was on mission to destroy everything that Christ had left behind. If you were to put a plan in place for anything, is that how you'd do it? Use the nobodies? Use the broken or weak? Or would you use the strong, the good, the best? That's part of what makes this plan so mysterious. God disguises his strength in our weakness. He has from the beginning. And here's why. Verse 10. God's purpose in all of this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all of the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The capital C church, which you and I are an integral part of, is his end game. His object listen, if you will. We are the flannel graph characters on the flannel board of his comics, cosmic Sunday school class. <laughs> Through the church, God is educating the angels, both good and evil. The unseen rulers and authorities are created beings on both sides of the good and evil aisle. As created beings, the angels, including Satan, are not omniscient. They don't know everything like God does. In 1 Peter 1, Peter tells us that the angels were curious as they watched the plan unfold. In 1 Corinthians 4 9, Paul said that the apostles had become a spectacle to the world and to angels. So as this plan unfolds and the mysterious becomes visible, the angels are watching and learning something new about God's wisdom. All of that is seen through the church. And as for the powers of hell, Satan included, certainly Satan does not possess any wisdom. He is the father of lies, and lies by definition are wisdom less. But Satan does know the Bible, and he understood when, how, and where Jesus would come, and why that would be necessary. He clearly knew it better than the Old Testament scholars of old. But nowhere in the Old Testament are there any prophecies about the church or the mystery of the Jews and Gentiles being united into one body. Had Satan known or understood the far-reaching results of the cross, he would have moved everything under heaven to keep Jesus alive. Now let's keep moving in verse 11. This was his eternal plan. This was God's eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. So please don't lose heart because of my trials here. I am suffering for you, so you should feel honored. Now we, together as the church, are stewards of this great truth. Our relationship with Jesus has moved us from being outsiders, not understanding this mystery, to insiders included in it. In 1 Corinthians, Paul told the church that the message of the gospel is foolishness to those on the outside. What was, what was once foolishness to us has not 
only become wisdom for us, but we have now become a part of the unveiling of the mystery, which is both a privilege and a responsibility. Which brings us to verse 14. As we saw in verse 1, we again read, when I think of all of this. Paul started into this prayer in verse 1 before interrupting himself to unpack the mystery of God uh, that finds its place in the church. So now the all this includes everything in chapters 1 and 2 and the mystery of God. When I think of all this, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. When, when Paul felt, while Paul fell to his knees to pray, he isn't prescribing how we should pray. During this time, most people prayed standing with their hands open in front of them in openness and surrender. Dropping to their knees showed their adoration, submissiveness, and urgency. Our physical posture when we pray is less important than our spiritual posture. But our physical posture can help focus our spiritual posture. This is the second prayer that we've seen in Ephesians. Michelle covered the first one in her message a few weeks ago. Uh, that prayer was a prayer for enlightenment. This prayer, on the other hand, is a prayer for enablement. Paul is praying that we won't just know about these truths. He wants us to live out of these truths. This is who we are to be as the people of God. In both prayers, as well as the other prison prayers that we find in Philippians 1 and Colossians 1, Paul focuses on the condition of our inner man not meeting our material or physical needs. More often than not, we focus on the reverse. We prior prioritize our material needs over our character. And it's not that praying for material needs is wrong, but Paul understood that if you can get the inner man in alignment with Christ, the outer man will be taken care of in time. Who we are on the inside often determines how we face what's happening on the outside. And since Paul has been given the inside scoop on how God's manifest wisdom will be revealed through the church, he knows what we will need to be on the inside to do what we've been called to do as ambassadors of the kingdom. And first, in this prayer, in verse 16 and into the first part of verse 17, he prays for strength. I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources... He will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. In Daniel 7.25, we're told that in the end times, the strategy of the enemy will be to oppress or wear down the people of God. Can we not see the beginnings of this now? The age we live in has been blessed far more than any other age with the technology to make life easier, better, but if there's anything that the past few years have demonstrated, it's that life is still pretty challenging. It's exhausting. We live life as, at an unsustainable pace. If our enemy can keep us exhausted, if he can wear us down, we won't have anything left to invest in our Christian journey. It's discouraging. It steals our hope and it dims the light of the church. So is it any wonder that we need inner strength powered by the Holy Spirit? In these verses, note 
what we see here in the phrase, from his glorious unlimited resources, in verse 16. Rather than translating this as from his glorious unlimited resources, as we see here in the New Living Translation, or out of his glorious riches, as we see in the NIV, it would have been more accurate to translate it as according to his glorious unlimited resources. It might seem like a nuance, but think about it this way. As Warren Wiersbe writes, if I am a billionaire and I give you $10, I have given you out of my riches. But if I give you a million dollars, I have given you according to my riches. The first is a portion, the second is a proportion. Like we don't have some of the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. We have all of the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. We have all the strength we need at our disposal. We already have it. We just haven't lived out of that power. You know, Paul is talking about something more than just the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. As Christ followers, uh, we have him. Again, it, it gets a little lost here in English, but the, the phrase translated, make his home, here in verse 17, is translated so that Christ may dwell in the NIV. In the, in the original language, Paul could have used a word to, for dwell that meant to inhabit, but instead he uses a word that means to settle down. So maybe picture it like this. Uh, when you accept Christ... The Holy Spirit drives his U-Haul up to your heart and unloads everything he, he'll need to make you like Jesus. The Holy Spirit now dwells in you. He inhabits, but he hasn't made your house a home yet. Paul's prayer for strength is that he'll actually unpack and settle into his home. It's like buying a fixer-upper that you intend to fix up to live in permanently, not just temporarily until you can flip it for a profit. Go watch HGTV if you don't know what I mean. The Holy Spirit is making himself comfortable in his new home. And that last phrase, as you trust in him, is important too. The good news is, for us is that we don't have to clean up our lives first before we have access to that strengthening power. God chose you because you were a mess. That's part of what has kept the mystery a mystery. So we don't have to try to be more holy. We just activate his power through faith. As Charles Swindoll says in his commentary, the more we keep Christ at the center of our lives, letting him shape our attitudes, values, choices, decisions, and actions, the more we will be like him. In faith, we just keep our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. And that faith unleashes the power of the Holy Spirit to make us like Jesus as he strengthens our inner man. So first, Paul prays for strength. Next, in the second half of verse 17, Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. Now, here in the New Living Translation, this verse is actually two sentences. But in the original language, there wouldn't be a period between them. Uh, and different translations have taken this into account in different ways. Uh, for our purposes, uh, we should think of it as one thought. As you trust in God, he will make his home in you. He will put down roots 
and make himself comfortable. And as a result, your roots will grow down. So even though uh, I said that Paul is praying for four things to help us live out our calling in Christ. They're actually four connected things that build on each other. First was living out of the strength of the Holy Spirit in verse 16. And in doing so, we will cultivate depth as well. Our roots will grow down into God's love. Our roots will deepen. But note this isn't a prayer uh, focusing on the Ephesians' love for Christ or even the Ephesians' love for others. Instead, it's that they know Christ's love for, for them. Psalm 1 gives us a perfect picture of what Paul means about our roots. There, David writes, they, th that is the righteous, they are like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never wither and they prosper in all they do. Our roots are so deep that we are constantly bearing fruit. I mentioned this verse uh, in the last series and Kevin Dial told me about his aha moment. He realized that nothing in creation bears fruit all of the time. So for something to bear fruit all of the time, it would have to be supernatural. It would have to be a God thing. Exactly. For there to be power in the, in the Christian life, there must be depth. Our roots must go deeper and deeper into the love of Christ, which always seeks the highest good of the one loved. Only a deeply rooted, uh, only a life deeply rooted in the love of God will have the strength to not only stand, but to flourish and bear fruit through the trials of life. And where our roots are symbolic of the love of God for us, the fruit on the other side of the tree is that love expressed in the lives of others. The fruit of the Spirit is always fruit given to us to give away to others. Uh, verse 18. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. The third thing Paul prays for is the power to understand the immensity of God's love. The idea here is that it is possible to understand something without making it our own. We can mentally comprehend, but Paul wants us to lay hold of or grasp the vast expanse of God's love for ourselves. Before technology made the Hubble Space Telescope or the more recent Webb Telescope possible, we could all comprehend the enormity of the universe. We knew it was big. We knew in our heads that stars represented other galaxies and the like. But now we literally get thousands of pictures that show entire galaxies, asteroid belts, black holes, nebula, and much, much more that are light years away from our tiny little planet. And though we might not ever lay, completely lay hold of that great expanse, we certainly have a deeper, richer understanding of creation. Every picture is a breathtaking tribute to our creator, as is God's love for us. His love for us is so infinite that we will spend our eternity discovering its riches. It's beyond knowledge. Way back in the Old Testament when God gave the land that would become Israel to Abraham, God told him to walk through the land in the length and the breadth of it. And Abraham stepped out in faith to claim his inheritance. 
Our inheritance has four dimensions. Breadth, length, depth, and height. As Charles Swindoll says, it is broad enough to cover anybody. Long enough to go beyond any barrier. High enough to take us all the way to glory and beyond. Deep enough to touch any need, any sin, or any hurt. Like the universe, the love of God is incalculable. The great jazz man Louis Armstrong once, was once asked uh, what jazz is. He said, man, if you got to ask, you'll never know. You could study jazz for a lifetime and get the, the techniques and the music theory that make jazz what it is. But jazz can't be explained. It's got to be felt, heard, experienced. So should we love, should the love of Christ be experienced? We need to taste it and see how sweet it is. Only the Holy Spirit can open us up to that kind of understanding. It's all good news for us. He'll never run out. And I don't know about you, but I need that kind of security. I test his love on a daily basis, sometimes hour by hour, minute by minute. You know, Paul keeps praying for one impossibility after another. Unlimited power, unlimited love, unknowable knowledge. And then in verse 19, the fourth thing we need to live out our calling by being is being filled by an infinite God. He writes this. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully, then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. So Paul prays that to the fullest extent our puny little capacity is able, that we would be, uh, that we would be filled to overflowing with God's strength, love, and knowledge. We don't measure our lives by how we compare to others, but by how much of God's fullness we've adopted as our own, which is only possible with the Holy Spirit. In one sense, Christ followers have already been made full in Christ. Colossians 2 tells us that we are complete. Positionally, we are complete in him through Jesus. That happens when we surrender our lives to Christ. But the Christian journey is all about discovering the richness and depth of that grace. More and more as we become more like Jesus. Not to save us, but as an expression of our desire to live out our calling in Jesus. We cannot be mature unless we know and experience the power of God in Christ. Which leads us to Paul's benediction in verses 20 and 21. Now, all glory to God who is able, through his mighty power at work within us, to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, all glory to God who is able to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. You know what I love about these verses? They take the pressure off. I don't have to worry about what may or may not be someday. I get to just keep on living with my eyes on Jesus, working for his glory to manifest itself through the church, as though it depends on me, but knowing it's all on him. He is able to accomplish, not Chris is able to accomplish. Chris just keeps saying yes to whatever opportunity God brings his way. He does the rest. 
I can handle that. I've lived my life that way when I wasn't fighting him tooth and nail. So maybe much of my life that way, some of my life that way. If our motive is to glorify God by building up the church in all of the depth and richness of how you define the church, then God will share his power with us and that will overflow through us. There's no better way to live. And the cool thing is, whatever we do in his power today will glorify Christ through all generations. Uh, as Wearsby says, the church's greatest ministry is yet to come. What we do here and now is just preparation for eternity. He's preparing me for that day. He's preparing you for that day. The mystery is still being revealed and we are part of it. So let's live like it. Let's pray. Father, <laughs> because I, I know that many of the people in this room and watching online, and I've had conversations with them, I, I know that we're all alike. We all have a tendency to focus on the wrong things. We worry, we, we stress out, we have fear about the future. We want to know what the, where we're going to end up and we focus less on what you're doing here in the moment in this journey, which is the wrong way to, 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 to live life. We can't borrow the power of God from tomorrow. We only get it for today. So Father, teach us to live with a yes for today, to trust you and all of your glory to do your perfect work in us and through us as you build the church. May we understand the depth of your love for us and how that mystery changes lives. And then may we live out the power of that love everywhere we go. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us today. Let me encourage you to download the discussion guide by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. Working through those questions alone or with others will help the truth of God's Word find its place in your life. Please reach out if you have any questions or want help on your spiritual journey. My email address is on the screen or you can call the church during the week. Faithful people like you make this ministry possible. People who believe in what God is doing through Dayspring, who have experienced God's work in and through their own lives and been changed in the process. If you're just checking us out today, please know that we don't expect you to give anything to support Dayspring. That is the responsibility of our Dayspringers. We are simply excited to play a small part as God does His perfect work in you today. For those of you who would like to start giving, we have three easy ways for you to get us your gift. Please see the online giving section of our website or text GIVE to the number on your screen or mail a check to us at the address you'll find on our website. And one more thing, thank you for liking and sharing and following Dayspring on whatever platform you connect with us. Thank you for rating us where that is appropriate. 
even more. Thank you for sharing our services with your friends and family. God uses you to plant seeds in other people's lives, so keep sowing. And if this service was a blessing to you, it'll probably be a blessing to someone else too. Until we meet again, may you experience great joy in the presence of Jesus.